times we truly know ourselves when we know you. And we pray that today, as we get into this little section of your word, that you might increase faith in us, trust in you and in your goodness, that you might remind us again of the, the sheer wonder of the gospel, that the Lord Jesus Christ should come as a saviour for us, and that through that grasp of the gospel that we might surrender our lives to you, that we might live lives of humble service to your Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen. I, I was interested just the other day to read that um, there's talk of a cricket test match between Australia and India coming and uh, there was a report in I think the Sydney Morning Herald saying that there was an expectation that it could well smash the record for attendance at a cricket uh, test match at the MCG. The MCG of course is huge and takes large numbers but they're expecting that possibly it might break the all-time record for the MCG in terms of cricket test matches which uh, got me thinking about uh, what is the actual largest number of people that have ever been to the MCG. And surprisingly, it's not for a cricket test match. Uh, It's not for an AFL grand final. Uh, It's not for anything related to rugby league or rugby union. It was actually the highest attendance was when 130,000 people Some say it's closer to 140,000 people, but at least 130,000 people crammed into the MCG in order to listen to Billy Graham preach the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that record has never been surpassed. Uh, Not even likely it would seem to be surpassed. And so if you go down to the MCG, they have a board where where they list all of the records and there it is, the Billy Graham crusade over 130,000 people came to hear the Gospel. It was 20 years after that event that Billy Graham came to Sydney and uh, I was 23 years old at the time and uh, I heard Billy Graham preach at his 257th crusade all around the world. I think he did over 400 in all. It was at the Randwick Race Course in 1979. Some of you may remember, some of you may have been there. It rained most of the days, making sitting out in the elements fairly unpleasant. Pauline and I decided that we would go. We were going to be leading a Bible study for converts out of the crusade. We thought we should at least go and hear him once. I'd grown up in a family where Billy Graham's name was Mud, where he was seen as an emotional uh, charlatan and uh, someone who could not be trusted. And so I went along with a fair degree of... uh, of of scepticism, I suppose, about what it was that I was going to hear and experience. Along with thousands of others after that first night, we couldn't stay away. Every evening after Billy had spoken, the choir would lead the crowd in singing, Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. And just as I am and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot, to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come. And every night of the crusade I wanted to go down the front and give my life to Jesus again. I'd done so several years before, but every night I wanted the buses to wait and I wanted to be able to go down the front and I wanted to be able to become a Christian all over again.
And all these years later I still meet people who look back on the 1959 crusade or the 1979 or whatever it may have been and they say that that was the moment at which I became a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Such is the power of the Gospel. It's dynamite according to the Apostle Paul. It's God's power to save a dead and lost community of people. It is a gospel message that bears fruit all over the world. And sometimes it's easy in Australia to forget that. We, we sow the, the seed into very barren soil at times here in Australia, but all around the world the gospel is growing believers and the church is growing. And so this morning what I'd like us to do is just, just spend a little bit of time in one chapter of Paul's letter to the church uh, in Colossae, to the Colossians chapter 3, And like all of Paul's letters, this letter is soaked in the Gospel. It's focused on the impact of the Gospel on the church, on those chosen by God to belong to him, to be his people and saved purely out of the rich mercy, the kindness, the unmerited favour, the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you go back in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, Paul reminds the church who it is that they believe in. He says, it is Jesus that you believe in, Lord of creation, head of the church, the image of the invisible God, the one in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is the one you believe in, Jesus. Don't forget that, he says. He reminds them that they have fullness because they are in Christ. He says, though you were once alienated from God by sin, by your rebellion, by your rejection of him, now you are reconciled to God purely through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are without blemish. You are free from accusation thanks to the glorious riches of Christ which has been lavished upon the Colossian believers and upon the Ashfield believers, the Petersham believers, upon all believers in every generation. And the church in Colossae appears to be in danger of forgetting that, of beginning to take Jesus and the Gospel, it would seem, for granted and losing sight of who it is that they believe in. And so Paul in chapter 1 reminds them it is Jesus who is at the very centre of the Gospel and it is Jesus who is at the very centre of your faith. Then in chapter 2 he reminds the church of what it is that they believe in because they appear to be at risk, at least some of them, of embracing a different message to the message of the Gospel. A message that relied, it would seem, on their religious observance. Perhaps a mystical experience on harsh treatment of the body as though somehow that will make you more holy rather than upon God's grace and the unmerited, freely given favour and forgiveness of God expressed in the Lord Jesus. And so Paul wants them to remember in chapter 2 what it is that they have believed. They have believed in Jesus and they have believed the Gospel. And so remember, he says, the rich mercy of God in Jesus. And so then chapter 3, our chapter, opens with the reminder now of who they are. Who it is they believed in, Jesus, what it is that they have believed in, the Gospel, the mercy and the riches of God's grace in the Lord Jesus and who are they now that they have believed the Gospel? In other words, who are you? Who are you as a person but who are you as a community of people who are gathered in church every Sunday and gathered as a community, who are you? 
Well, notice what Paul says, chapter 3. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let me ask you a question. Uh, How might you turn out a generation of legalistic moralizers within the church? That may not be a question you've ever given too much serious thought to. I hope you haven't, but, but let me ask it of you now. How might you turn out a generation of legalistic moralizers in the church? Men and women who adhere to a rigid set of rules for how you should live, but without any life, without any passion, without any fire, without any grace. A generation, in other words, who when it comes to what they pass on in turn to the next generation, will pass on absolutely nothing. How do you create that situation? It's not hard, as the history of the church shows. And the answer is, teach them Christian living, but don't teach them the Christian gospel. Teach them Christian living. How should a Christian live? But don't teach them why a Christian should live that way. Don't teach them who a Christian really is. Don't teach them the gospel. Teach them how to live without grounding that in who they are, their identity in Christ. Because when you separate the gospel from Christian living, then you end up with legalistic moralism. Nothing else. That's why Paul is always grounding his ethical commands in the fertile soil of the gospel. Why our best antidote to temptation and sin is to remind ourselves of the gospel, of what God in Christ has done for us. When we're struggling with temptation and we're wondering if it's really worth it, Why would you persevere? Why would you choose to say no to temptation and yes to obedience? Because of the gospel. Because you know that God in his deep love for you gave his only son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. That's why. No other reason for Christian living is sufficient. The commands of God for how we might live only make sense and they only have power when they are rooted deeply in our identity as men and women in whom the gospel has taken root. And so Paul wants to remind the church of how they must live, we'll come to that in the next talk, now that they belong to Christ. But first he wants to remind them of who they are, what has happened to them to make them so radically different that they are now going to live radically different lives. And he reminds them and us of two great events and that's what we're going to be looking at. Two events in their history that will inevitably shape the way that they live today. Two events that create reality for us as Christian men and women, a reality that we perhaps struggle to hold on to as we live our lives now 
but a reality which is real and certain because it is grounded in heaven itself. So, two great events. Firstly, he says, you and I have died with Christ. Notice back in chapter 2, verse 20, he begins the verse with, since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why as though you still belonged to it, do you submit to its rules? Since then, since then you have died with Christ, and he returns to it again in chapter 3, verse 3, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Jesus died on the cross, he took to the cross your sin and mine. How is it that Paul puts it that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so those who are united with Christ through faith have died, Paul says, with Jesus. We died to sin. We died to living for ourselves. We died to the need, as Paul says in chapter 2, to obey man-made rules, don't taste, don't touch, don't do this, don't do that. Died, he says in chapter 3, verse 2, to earthly things. Now, Paul doesn't mean that we no longer have an interest in the good gifts of God, that we are to follow the pattern perhaps of the medieval monks who abstained from everything that was good and rich and beautiful in their world. Rather, he's contrasting earthly things with heavenly things, with those things that are opposed to God, in other words, with sin. We no longer live for such things that are a replacement for God. When our first child began school, as a five-year-old, Pauline and I embraced everything about the school experience. Uh, we were very excited. We went to P&C meetings. We, uh, I helped run the Infants Club Chess Club. Uh, made sure I never played them because I was never 100% sure that I would win. Uh, we went to special assemblies. We did the lot. We threw ourselves into the experience. We kept it up for the next 16 odd years as our three children moved from infants to primary to high school. And when our youngest left school, we left school as well. We've never been to another school assembly. Never gone back to PNC. Nothing. We walked away that day and turned our backs on everything. It no longer occupies our thoughts. We no longer think about it. We no longer live for it. It has no role or place in our lives. Those things that previously occupied you, says Paul, no longer. Put them behind you. You've died to them. They are no longer relevant for you because you have died with Christ to those things. Just as he died in your place, so you have died with him to those things that once stood in place of God. The things that still preoccupy those who are not in Christ. Living self-centred and self-preoccupied lives. Lives that revolve around whatever God it was that you once worshipped giving first place to wealth or to career or pleasure or lifestyle or reputation or family or whatever it may have been, giving the first place in your life and in your affections and in your desires and in your dreams and your aspirations, giving first place to anything or anyone but God. You've died to it. It's behind you. That's not who you are. 
because in the gospel you have died. But secondly, he says, we have been raised with Christ. See chapter 3 verse 1, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Down in verse 4, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. It's a hard reality to get our head around, isn't it? Since then you have been raised with Christ. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I'm going to take you just for a moment to, um, to Revelation where John gives us this wonderful vision of heaven. Uh, a vision of the reality of heaven. Though we do not see it, but it is real nonetheless. So Revelation chapter 4, and John's describing what he sees when he's brought up to heaven. And he says, At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven, with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were twenty-four other thrones and seated on them were twenty-four elders and they were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads and from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder and before the throne seven lamps were blazing. These were the seven spirits of God. And down in verse, verse 8 we're told that each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around it, even under his wings and day and night they never stopped saying holy Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And then over in Revelation chapter 5 as the, the focus shifts to the Lamb of God, to the Lord Jesus and down in verse 6 Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain standing in the centre of the throne encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And see what they say. You are worthy to take the scroll to open the seals because you were slain and down below worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honour and glory and power and the elders fell down and they worshipped. That is where you and I are, says Paul. That's where we are. That's who we are in the Lord Jesus Christ raised with Christ into heaven itself. Our lives now hidden with Christ in God. And this vision of heaven that John gives us is a vision of the spiritual reality even though our current physical reality does not reflect it so much. It's the marvel of God's grace that though I was dead in sin I have died in Christ And now he has raised me to new life. To one day enter into all of this glory that John speaks of, all of this glory of heaven. To be amongst the 24 elders, representative of the church, the people of God, in gathering around the throne of God to worship and to praise and to adore, to recall and remember the goodness and the the grace of God in Christ. 
But it's hard to feel like that now, isn't it? Not many of us, I suspect, got up this morning and the first thought that we had was that we are raised with Christ and our lives are now hidden with him. That our heavenly reality is one of sitting with the elders as we give worship and praise to Almighty God. But where do we get a taste of it? Well, the answer is in the church. What we're doing right now is a taste. As we gather as the church, we are giving earthly expression to this great heavenly reality. Church is a foretaste of heaven to come, a glimpse of a spiritual reality so that as we gather with the people of God around the throne of God and Christ by his spirit is in our midst and we worship him and we honour him and we adore him and we recount his character and his deeds as we give him the glory for being, for being God himself so we are giving a reflection and expression to a heavenly reality which is ours already and which into one day we will inherit doesn't always feel like that, though, does it, on a Sunday? Uh, I've worked for many years in Blacktown at uh, a church there and um, we used to meet in a community hall and uh, we would often turn up and there'd been a 21st or something like that the night before and the place still looked and smelt like there'd been a 21st the night before. Uh, and... Um, Every, every Sunday, uh, our session clerk, Brian, would lead the elders in the kitchen in prayer. And uh, every Sunday for years, Brian would begin his prayer by saying, we thank you, God, for this taste of heaven. Now, many was the time when I stood there with him in prayer in 40 degree heat and the stench of the alcohol and I'm knowing that the congregation out in the other room still hadn't really arrived and I think, is that really true? Well, I knew it was true because he'd got it from a sermon I'd preached so of course it was true <laughs> but it didn't feel true A church made up of struggling men and women at times hanging on in quiet desperation. It didn't always feel like a taste of heaven but friends it was. The people of God gathered together. Christ in our midst. God as our focus. And the fellowship of knowing that we have been drawn from every tribe and nation to give glory and worship to him. Isn't that what we do when we come to church? Isn't that what we're, what we're desperately trying to replicate? Of course it's a pale reflection. It always will be until that final day, but it is a reflection. It's just that taste, that moment when we gather together, when the, the curtain between us and heaven is just flicked aside and we get a glimpse of what heaven will be like. When we'll lay our crowns at his feet, Remember God as King and sing, our voices will sing with the angels themselves. Holy, holy, holy. It's easy to lose grip on that. We know it's true, but it's very easy to lose grip. Church reality can seem such a long way from the scenes of Revelation 4 and 5. 
We often don't feel particularly raised with Christ. Our knees still ache. Our marriages still take a lot of work and going to church at times can be plain hard work. Which is why Paul says to his readers in chapter 3, since then you have been raised with Christ, as this is your reality, what should you do now? Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set, he repeats it, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Make heaven your preoccupation. Is that what you do? Do you set your mind on it? Have you set your heart on it? Every Sunday when you come to church, do you remind yourselves that this is a taste of heaven and that this is the reality? I was reading about a pastor who said that he'd come out of church one Sunday and was standing at the door as traditionally pastors used to do to shake hands with the congregation. And as, as they were filing out, one of the um, uh, men in the congregation shook his hand and he said, well, pastor, that was terrific, but back to the real world, eh? <laughs> and the pastor said that he, he thought that's just where they'd been in the real world. But it can be hard to hold on to, can't it? It takes discipline and focus as we set our hearts and minds on heaven. To stay heavenly minded. When I got uh, converted, uh, I was 17 years old and uh, one of the things that my, um, that my father said to me was, well, if you're going to be doing this sort of thing, just make sure that it's moderation in all things. <laughs> and a number of people said to me that the problem with Christians was that they could be so heavenly minded that they were of no earthly use. And as I've gone along in the Christian faith, the thing that has struck me is that firstly, to live is Christ. And there's no such thing as moderation in the Christian life. But that secondly, my great danger, and I think the church's great danger, is not that we'll be so heavenly minded as to be of no earthly use. Our problem is that we'll be so earthly minded as to be of no heavenly use. And Paul understands that. So he says, set your heart and your minds on heaven. You want to live well in this world? Well, you make sure that you remember your reality in the next. You want to be a faithful disciple of Christ? will put your focus on heaven because it will transform the way that you live on earth. I just started um, uh, re-reading J.I. Packer's Knowing God. I haven't read it for many years. Uh, it was the first book um, I ever bought from Kurong. Kurong in those days was actually a, a basement uh, in Kurong Avenue, I think it was. And uh, we, we went along and they had piles of knowing God that high. I think it was the only title that they stopped at that point. Uh, and uh, so that's, that's what I've started rereading. And um, it's a terrific, it's a great book. It really is. It, it, it seems like a hard book to read, but when you start reading it, it's a, it's a wonderful book. But when to, in the chapter where Packer talks about being a child of God, he says there are six things that he reminds himself of and we should remind ourselves of. I am a child of God. God is my Father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. 
My saviour is my brother and every Christian is my brother or sister. And Packer says, say it over and over to yourself first thing in the morning, last thing at night, as you wait for your bus, any time your mind is free, and ask that you may be enabled to live as one who knows that it is all utterly and completely true. See, that's the task of the Christian. Set your hearts and minds on things above. And as we will see when we come to look at uh, the remaining verses from verse 5 on of uh, Colossians 3, out of that will flow such transformed lives that others will see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So, let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for the Gospel. Thank you for the reminder that you loved us so much that you did not spare your own Son. That Jesus gave up all the glory of heaven and humbled himself, became a servant and was obedient even to death in order that we might live. Our Heavenly Father, such love such mercy, such kindness to us. It beggars our imagination. And all we can do is pause and to give you thanks and praise. To join our voices with that of the heavenly host in saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you might enable us daily to fix our hearts and minds upon this great heavenly reality of who we are because of what Jesus has done. And we pray for this in his most holy name. Amen.